Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Elizabeth. And yes, I'm Susan, recovering sex and love addict. Um, Hey, guys. Thank you, Elizabeth and MG, for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Um, So I'm going to talk about what it was like, uh, what happened, and what it's like now. And uh, my intention in sharing my story is to help the sex and love addict who still suffers. Um, But I actually thought, I'm going to start with kind of a funny story from today, um, because my recovery is in today. And um, with the COVID-19, and I'm a a teacher, so there's remote learning, and I'm at a year-round school, so technically we're supposed to be working uh, the next couple weeks, but of course the kids are the kids are done. And so um, my coworkers were doing a group chat or a group text about, uh, you know, like, what's that going to look like when there's really nothing to do, but we're supposed to be working. And I guess they didn't know I was on the the group text. And one of them said, um, well, I don't know how Susan's going to feel about this because she's, she's so honest. She's too honest. And um, I had, you know, I had to chuckle because it's like, um, for me, like that was a compliment. Like that's my emotional sobriety. And that's one of the gifts of um, my recovery in SLAA. Um, To be in integrity with myself and uh, every day. And that's the 10th step. But I'm going to talk about, you know, what it was like before SLAA. And basically, before SLAA, I was basically a lost child, um, a victim. Uh, I was a victim. I was a true victim as a child of my childhood. Um, But, you know, I kept that persona and brought it into my adulthood. And that has not served me well at all. Um... I, before SLAA, I got uh, all my, well, I didn't get all, but a lot of self, my self-worth and validation from attention from men. Started with boys and then uh, getting it from men. Uh, I had no danger filter as a child before SLAA. Um, got myself in all kinds of super dangerous situations. Uh, physically and emotionally. Uh, I was I was born the fourth uh, daughter of five girls in Dallas, and uh, my parents divorced when I was eight. And they both remarried uh, real quickly. My mother uh, remarried a much younger man, uh, an abusive alcoholic, um, 
you know, my mother was a sex and love addict. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. She never knew it. She died without any recovery or any knowledge of it. She suffered a lot in her life. Um, and so the things that happened to me in my childhood, uh, I take, I, I know it was my mother's responsibility to look, to be looking after me. And I also know she, she did the best she could because she was a, a sex and love addict. And I have a lot of compassion for her today. So uh, she remarried this uh, alcoholic, uh, sex and love addict, sex addict. And, um, they, you know, my mother was also sexually abusive because she was a, a sex addict and she was very sexual in front of, uh, in front of me. And um, my stepfather sexually abused my younger sister and I. And uh, what, that ha what that did was that it sexualized me at a very young age. And I um, also, what I've realized through my recovery and a lot of reflection um, was that I, I loved my stepfather. And he gave me a lot of attention. And when we, uh, when we ran from him, when my mother took us and ran from him, I was very traumatized by that. And um, but what happened was it set me up to confuse uh, sex with love, to confuse the two. And so um, I grew up, you know, when I started developing, I started, uh, you know, like using my, the physical part of me to get attention. And uh, my dad at this time, we fled to Dallas. We were in Utah and we fled to Dallas and my dad stayed in Utah with his new wife and new family. And I saw him in the summers, but even then uh, he was wrapped up in work, very unavailable uh, workaholic. Uh, he's 98 years old now. He's still alive. And uh, he basically, the last couple of years, has made amends with me and talked to me about his, uh, his neglect. But that would be, you know, that would be my, the story of me as a child neglected. Uh, I became very shut down and repressed and depressed. Um, I found out when I was about 12 or 13 that when I got attention from boys, it felt really good. And it became my, basically became my drug of choice, became what I was looking for all the time to get a hit. Um, my first sexual, real sexual experience uh, <clears throat> as a teenager was actually a rape. I was about 13. It was an older boy. And um, that began my, you know, real promiscuity. I ended up Excuse me. I ended up getting married when I was 16, um, and my husband was 19, and um, we stayed married for 26 years. But our marriage was full of addiction, especially the first uh, 15, 15 years, I would say. We both acted out um, with other people. I knew he was an alcoholic and a drug addict. I did not know we were both sex and love addicts. 
and I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was that I felt like um, my relationship with my husband was based totally on sex. I didn't understand it, like that he was only nice to me when I was sexual with him. I didn't understand any of it. And so I became uh, the avoidant in the relationship. Um, and so I'm completely emotionally unavailable. Um, but he, we were married 26 years. He was, uh, he never got, neither one of us never got recovery in our marriage. But um, he died of cancer. And when he died, I um, basically uh, started acting out in my sex and love addiction. When I was the avoidant with my husband, I, I like turned to being the addict and I started seeking out uh, men uh, almost immediately, a few months after he died. Um, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I felt like I had picked up where I left off uh, years, you know, since I was 16. Um, so what happened was that my life got super unmanageable. This was in Michigan, got very unmanageable and a lot of pain and a lot of drama and did a lot of, uh, dangerous things. Uh, before I left Michigan, uh, I was teaching at a prison, uh, a men's prison, and I was flirting with one of the inmates and was, uh, talking to him about seeing him when he got out. And that was kind of like one of my, my lowest points. Basically, um, I kind of always knew that I was going to move to, that I was going to live in Houston. Um, my youngest sister has lived in Houston for a long time and I had been to Houston and visited. Um, so when I uh, left Michigan, I was in a relationship with a um a guy who had been in recovery for like 25 years he was in na and uh he he introduced me to recovery he was he was abusive and i'm sure he was a sex and love addict an untreated sex and love addict but he did um introduce me to recovery and um i had started uh, because of him introducing me to recovery, I had started Al-Anon in Michigan before I left. And I'd gotten a sponsor, and I had just started working the steps. But um, I decided that I needed to leave the guy, and I decided I was going to move to Houston. And, um, you know, I had solid reasons I was going to move there because my sister lived there, because there was lots of teaching jobs, because the weather was beautiful. And that was all true. But what I didn't know was later how I felt was that God picked me up and threw me down in, in Houston um, for my recovery. And I, you know, I got to Houston and I was still in contact with the qualifier um, in Michigan. And I was in a lot of pain because I was in withdrawal and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know there was a name for that. And I started, of course, dating uh, somebody in Houston uh, got into a relationship with um, another sex addict, another, I don't know if he's a love addict, he's definitely a sex addict. And um, I was living in spring with my sister, 
and I would drive. He lived in Missouri City, and I would drive to see him and stay at his house for three and four days at a time, and I would feel like I was uh, like on drugs. I was so high um, being with him and um, all the sexual activity. And, um, you know, my relationships, other relationships were deteriorating. Um, you know, I couldn't, my, my job life was suffering and I decided to see a therapist and, uh, I found a therapist or my higher power found me a therapist. I was still going to Al-Anon and I, and it, and it somewhat helped, you know, cause I had, you know, I'd gotten a relationship with my higher power and I, you know, was basically, you know, I'd worked the steps and so I'd made some progress. I was being reparented by the people in the program. I was starting to reparent myself, but I was still, um, you know, acting out in my sex and love addiction because I didn't know, I didn't know what that was until I uh, went to therapy and the therapist uh, was in the program and she suggested it to me and I went to my first meeting. And that was in, that was probably around 2008. I didn't seriously start going to meetings until 2009 regularly. And um, my first meeting uh, was in Sugarland. I remember it well. The women told their stories and I felt like I was going to throw up. And I told the therapist, I don't, I don't know if this is good for me. It made me feel really sick. And she said, well, I think that's good. You need to keep going. And I didn't understand it, um, but I started. Um, I started going to meetings regularly. I met lots of women in the program. I started to make friends with women in the program. I got a sponsor. I began to work the steps, uh, but I was still in contact with my qualifier. wasn't quite ready to give him up. Uh, <coughs> the turning point was when I attended my first SLAA beach retreat. We worked the steps, we laughed, we played, we did arts and crafts. I felt so much love and support that when I went home, I changed my phone number, blocked my email, and never engaged with that qualifier again. I began a year of tons of meetings, amazing fellowship, and I was on the pink cloud. I was uh, in no contact with men that first year. When that was first suggested to me, I thought, what the heck am I going to be doing? I didn't know a life without, um, without men, without dating, without fantasizing. I didn't, I couldn't imagine what I would be doing, <clears throat> but I had one of the best years of my life. Um, I began sponsoring women as soon as I could doing as much service work as I could. Um, I, by some, you know, my higher powers um, guidance, I became a delegate for the annual business meeting. Uh, I did one year in San Antonio, one year in San Diego. I also served as, a, as the secretary for the Houston Intergroup for three years. I did as much service as I could. And the reason was people said service keeps you sober, but the truth of the matter was that I was having the happiest life I had ever had the most connected. I knew I belonged. I felt loved. I felt known. 
the hurt little girl who always felt, um, who always felt, you know, like not a part of was healing. I wasn't shut down anymore. I was thriving. Um, I'd be after a year of no contact, I um, started dating with, the, you know, uh, with a dating plan, um, with the guidance of my sponsor. I finished all 12 steps in that first year. Um, <clears throat> what I found out when I started dating was that I still had basically the same patterns. And um, I was still attracted to unavailable men. Um, I was still a bit of a seductress as far as, like, um, you know, knowing that how to, like, hook a man. Um, that still came up a lot. <clears throat> um, and, but the difference was that I had tons of support from my sisters in SLAA. I wasn't doing it alone and my higher power. Um, I had a lot of recovery tools, but uh, I still was trying to, you know, exert my own will. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't surrendering totally to the process of the dating plan. Not that that's a bad thing. It was part of my growth, part of my process. And, um, you know, I can say in 2013, so I've been dating, um, I don't know, a couple of years, two or three years off and on. And um, I, you know, I could say I had a relapse, but what I really think is that what I said was my higher power presented me with my greatest teacher. Um, so I met someone that um, had been in recovery for like 25 years when I met him, not in uh, SLAA, um, but other programs and very well loved in the recovery community, lots of connections. Um, and I thought, even though there were tons of red flags and, and today, um, you know, the red flags for me are things of how I feel. Um, when I'm not really in alignment and I pretend to be, or I think I can survive it. Cause that's one of my oldest uh, coping strategies is I'm going to survive this because I want what I want when I want it. And I wanted a guy, I wanted to be married and I decided he was the one I was going to marry and that I would just, um, handle it and push on. Um, so we were, uh, after three years, um, I separated from him, um, after tons of processing, um, had gotten a new sponsor, had reworked the steps, had, um, like I said, done lots of processing and meditating and, um, came to the, you know, the realization that, um, that I needed to leave. And, um, it was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life. Um, because I was, did have a trauma bond with him. Uh, he was abusive and I had a trauma bond with him. Um, and that's one of my patterns is, um, trauma bonding with abusive men and mistaking it for love. And I know it directly connects to my childhood. I'm 
So he was one of my greatest teachers, this last qualifier, uh, or this greatest teacher, like I said. And, um, but he helped me find my voice and he helped me find um, my boundaries and that I did have uh, standards and that I did love myself enough um, to leave the relationship. So, um, so I left and then we were separated for a year and a half and, um, and then I filed for divorce and shortly after that, so that's, um, what happened. And right after, um, I left him, well, not right after we got divorced, I'd been wanting, uh, I'd been visiting Raleigh uh, for years because my youngest daughter had lived here for a long time. And so I uh, had always thought that I would live here at some point. Um, it was just kind of in the back of my mind. It was just kind of one of those knowings. And so um, the opportunity presented itself and my middle daughter um, was sick. And um, I decided that you know, I was going to make the move. And so about a year and a half ago, I moved to Raleigh um, to be near my granddaughter, my daughters and my grandchildren. Um, and the decision was made in, you know, I was in, I had been in group therapy um, before I got divorced. It was one of the things that helped me so much. And it's one of my top-line behaviors, you know, doing the group therapy with um, being able to leave and get the divorce in sobriety, in emotional sobriety. And so I asked my therapist, I said, do you think this moving, I'm moving to Raleigh, do you think I'm like running away? <clears throat> you know, it's a, you know, when I was a child, I moved like four times in third grade. I counted it one time. I'd moved like 35, 40 times by the time I was 16. My mother definitely used the geographical cure, you know. <clears throat> and so I, and I've moved a lot in my recovery. And um, so I asked her, do you think this is, I'm doing this? And she's like, no, um, this is well thought out. This is done in awareness and no, this is not the same thing. And so I came to Raleigh and what kept going through my head was that I was making peace with my past because the relationships with my daughters had definitely suffered um, through all my acting out in my recovery years. Um, I'd lost a lot of communication with my two oldest daughters. So now <clears throat> um, I had the opportunity to make peace with my past and re-enter my daughter's lives and make amends to myself. And it was mostly about making amends to myself. Um, so, you know, how it is now, um, I'm obviously still on my recovery journey. Um, I miss, you know, I don't, I don't know if I miss it, but it, I, I see my journey in Houston with such a fondness and such a love. Um, and this is just another uh, chapter of my life here in Raleigh. But um, it's still my recovery and my spiritual journey. 
And um, today, I practice my spirituality in a multitude of different ways. I do, I do still sponsor um, women in slaw, um, but and I go to meetings. They don't have slaw meetings here. Um, that's why this whole COVID thing and being on the Zoom for meetings has been such an amazing blessing. Um, you know, I, could, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I don't have another word for it. Incredible that I've been able to, um, to be part of, part of the group again, because I was really missing it. Um, <clears throat> but I have found meetings here that I, that I feel are strong, have strong recovery and that I connect to. And um, I reach out for support. Um, I have, you know, a circle of trusted friends. Um, today, you know, I've been working the last year and a half, um, really rebuilding my relationships with my children slowly but surely. Uh, <laughs> one baby step at a time. Um, and it's, you know, it's a gift for sure. I'm still growing, learning, evolving. Um, the main thing I want to say about my journey is that there's been so many people that my higher power had put it put in my life to help me on my way um, that I never um, I never could have chosen for myself. Like um, so surprising, the people. Um, that my higher power put in my life to help me on my way. And um, so I'm so grateful for that. So, um, you know, basically, you know, uh, it's just another layer of my recovery now. I will always be grateful for SLAW. Um, I never knew, this is what I would always say, I never knew there was a name for what I had experienced growing up and that there was a solution. Um, and so, like I've said a couple of times, uh, I have a lot of, uh, I think about my mother a lot, uh, you know, and uh, I had an experience right before um, I divorced um, my, hus my ex-husband um, where I was feeling like I couldn't do it um, that I didn't have the strength to do it. And I said, I just, I said to my sponsor, I'll never forget this. Um, I said, I, I just don't think I can do it for me. Can I tell me to do it? You know, if you tell me to get a divorce, I'll do it. And she said, can you do it for your little girl? And, um, the little girl inside me. And I said, yes, I can. And I went home and I looked at, um, in a photo album, a picture of me when I was like in third grade. And then right next to it, <clears throat> on the other page was a picture of my mother and my dad, like on their wedding day. And I realized that I was doing it for me. And I was also doing it for my mother. I was doing it for all the women, um, you know, that had come before me that couldn't do it. They didn't have the support of the program. And so, um, so today I know that, um, I need to give my recovery away to keep it. And, um, I know that I'm more than my story, that this is my recovery story. I know that I'm more than this, but by sharing it, 
I integrate even more all the parts of myself that got shattered a long time ago. And so um, I'm just grateful for this opportunity and that I can give hope to the sex and love addict who still suffers. So thank you. That's it. Thank you so much, Susan. That was so amazing. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.